welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Hello, Awakening. Uh, It's great to be with you, digitally, that is. My name is Josh Butler. I'm a pastor in the Phoenix area, and I love helping people who wrestle with some of the tough topics of the Christian faith, largely because I've wrestled with a lot of them myself. And today we want to be asking, what do we do when we come across some tough passages in Scripture? When you're reading through your Bible and you come across a passage that is alarming or shocking, maybe surprising or strange, where do we go with that? What do we do with that? Next week, you guys are launching a series called We Believe on the Apostles' Creed and exploring the foundations of the Christian faith. But this week, we want to clear the table, so to speak, before we set the table. Going, what do we do with some of these obstacles or difficulties that we can encounter with approaching the Bible? Because the Bible is not a cotton candy book. You only have to get a little ways in the biblical story before you find brutal battles and bloody violence, even gang rape and cities destroyed by fire and most of humanity wiped out by a flood. And all this is only a little ways into the first book of Genesis, right? So how do we deal honestly with these passages? How do we approach kind of the blatant sex and violence, the greed and the lust for power that we find on its pages? Well, the title for the message today is R-Rated Bible, like the R-Rated Bible. And I want to give you three tips that have helped me over the years, some overarching observations and how we approach scripture that I found can be really helpful. Before we jump in, It's helpful to remember why this topic is so important in the first place. It's important because Jesus loves the Bible. We love Jesus and Jesus loves the Bible. One of the things that you find when you read through the Gospels is that the way that Jesus talks about Scripture, Jesus holds Scripture in much higher uh, esteem and as authoritative than we often do today. So Jesus is constantly saying things like, have you not read, have you not read, have you not read, or it is written, it is written, it is written, as he regularly quotes from and alludes to the Old Testament. Jesus says things like, not a jot or a tittle will pass away of it. And he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you want to dive deeper on this topic, a book I highly recommend, there's this book, great little book by a guy named Andrew Wilson called Unbreakable, What the Son of God Said About the Word of God. It's easy to read, uh, but it's basically looking at Jesus on Scripture and Jesus' view of Scripture. But we want to know the Bible better because we want to know Jesus better. Jesus is the Word of God through whom we have received the Word of God. And the whole story ultimately points to Him. So we want to know scripture and we want to know our Bibles better because ultimately our hope and our goal is to get to know Jesus better. So that said, let's dive in. Okay, tip number one here, as you're reading your Bible and you come across kind of a difficult passage, I'd say tip number one is this, recognize that you are crossing a chasm of history. Recognize that you are crossing a chasm of history. You're crossing a chasm of history, and here's what I mean. If you were to watch an old film, my mom and I got into Hitchcock films back in the day. So if you're watching like an old Hitchcock film or It's a Wonderful Life or something, you immediately start to notice, man, people dress differently then, they talk differently, they had different ways of kind of interacting and all. Uh, And that's just like one or two generations back. 
If you go back even further, many of us are fascinated today by shows like Downton Abbey or Mad Men, kind of these period pieces that show kind of times that are even further back. And then you really see even more like, oh my gosh, the whole social customs and ways that people, expectations they had as a culture, society were way different from what we have now. Now, even there, we're still talking within the last 200 years within Western culture and our own same language. Now, you multiply that by a few thousand, <laughs> multiply that 100 by 100, right? And we're talking about a few thousand years of difference, a chasm in history, chasms in language and culture. The analogy might be if uh, it was a thousand, couple thousand years from today. So let's say it's AD, it's like 5,000, 85,000. And in China, they come across some old videotapes of the TV show, This Is Us, kind of our modern TV show, This Is Us. And they're watching that in a different language and subtitles and trying to piece together, oh my gosh, look how differently they lived back then. Well, that's kind of a better analogy. That's kind of like what we're doing now where we are looking back and we're reading texts from thousands of years ago from a different language and a different culture. We're crossing a chasm of history. Now, the Bible it was written for us, but it was not necessarily written to us. And here's what I mean by this. This is Dr. John Walton, a famous biblical scholar. And he puts it this way. He says, we believe the Bible was written for us. That is for everyone of all times and places because it's God's word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. It was written in the Old Testament, at least to Israel and the ancient Near East, and that's a big chasm of history. Dr. Walton points to two chasms here uh, that I think are helpful to recognize, a chasm of language and a chasm of culture. Uh, let's talk first about the chasm of language, that the Bible was written in a different language. It was written in Hebrew and in Greek. And so the church has historically had to wrestle with what are the best words to translate into uh, this language or that language in places where the Bible has been translated in different languages all over the world. Uh, one example, some of the stuff, issues that can arise is uh, if you're reading an old King James version, right, you'll come across about nine times in the Bible that the word unicorn shows up. So Isaiah 34, 7, for example, uh, says, and the unicorns shall come down with them. And when we hear the word unicorn, we think of like the magical fairy tale animal with the purple tail and it's flying, the flying horse, right? You know, we come up going, oh my gosh, is the Bible saying I need to believe in fairy tale, mythical flying horse unicorns? Uh, well, you may have even seen some funny memes about this. There are some uh, memes out there by atheists or others kind of poking fun at Christianity, like this one where you've got the unicorns uh, waiting to get on the ark and kind of, oh, we'll just catch the next one. And the joke or the punchline is that uh, we don't have unicorns around today because it's sort of missed the boat on getting on Noah's Ark, right? But we can find ourselves asking, what's going on with unicorns in the Bible? Well, the backstory to this is if you go back in 1611, when they were translating the King James Version, they were translators were trying to translate an ancient Hebrew word, re'em. And they didn't know what re'em was. It was an animal, but they weren't sure what animal it was anymore. And so they looked at the Greek translation where ancient Jews from that time had translated that word into Greek. And the word they used was monokeros, which literally means one horn. And so the King James translation was going, well, what do we know about an animal with one horn? Well, the word we have for that is unicorn in English, unicorn. And back in 1611, when they made this translation, unicorn didn't mean like the fairy tale mythical creature. Unicorn meant an animal with one horn, like a rhinoceros, right? And so they translated it, which was a good translation back in 1611. 
but times change, language changes. Uh, but even so, like say in India, you have a famous one-horned rhino where the Latin name for it is rhinoceros unicornis, like the rhino unicorn, right, one horn. But today in English, that word has different associations, different meanings. Now the point here is that there is a chasm of language. There's a chasm of language between us today and 1611, the King James, Old, Old King James Bible. And there's an even bigger chasm between both us and the King James translators and the ancient Hebrew and Greek. That doesn't mean we can't understand God's word and all, but it means that there may be times where we come across something where uh, we're entering into an ancient language. And there's a chasm that has to be crossed there. The second thing that Dr. Walton points to here is a chasm of culture that culture was different back in the ancient Near East than it is in our time and place today. An example like society is structured differently, life is structured differently, different social expectations, different norms. So maybe a more a poignant example even of this would be in the book of Joshua. So if you're reading in the book of Joshua and you'll come across uh, these numerous passages where Israel is told to destroy these cities and they're given what I like to call the drastic marching orders, like show no mercy, do not leave alive anything that breathes, basically knock out these cities. And one of the challenges here is that when you and I today, when we hear the word city, we think of a civilian population center, right? Because cities today are where the people live. I live here in Phoenix, and if I walk outside my front door, I see, you know, another house across the street with a white picket fence and the kids playing. I mean, I walk down the street one way, and there's like a hospital and a school. I walk down the other way, and there's like businesses and small shops. Cities today are where the people live. They're civilian population centers. But this was not so in the ancient Near East. Back in this time and in this place, cities were small, fortified military outposts that protected the roads leading up to the villages where the people were. But within the cities themselves, uh, cities were populated mostly by just soldiers and maybe a few government officials. Right? Like scholars estimate that Jericho held about 200 soldiers or so at the time. This means that when in the book of Joshua they're knocking down these cities, they're knocking down defensive military installations. God is pulling down the Great Wall of China, so to speak, not demolishing Beijing. Israel is knocking out the Pentagon, not New York City. These are military encounters with these defensive installations. Now, the point here is recognizing that when we're reading the Bible, we are crossing a chasm of history, a chasm of language, chasm of culture, um, and that's good. It also means though, that there are some points where we might be reading and come across something where there's a point of tension because of that chasm with something that we may not understand, and that's okay. Now, it's a mistake to think because of that that you've got to believe in unicorns as magical, mythical, fairy tale creatures, or that you have to believe that God commanded genocide, those kind of things. That, that's not the case, we can zoom back out to the bigger story and say, okay, what do we know to be true? The kind of things you're gonna be looking at next week in the Apostles' Creed, so the foundations of the faith the church has historically proclaimed. And it's helpful with this to go, the Bible was meant to be read within community. I think sometimes we have a false perception that I, I should be able to go in my closet with a flashlight and just read the Bible and everything will be immediately clear. Go, I know we were meant to read the Bible within the community of the church, right? And we have pastors, leaders, people can ask questions, people can press into on these questions. And not only our local church, but we are intended to read the Bible within the bigger picture, the global and historic church. 
that there is a broad tradition that has grappled with and loads of resources to help us to understand what's going on if we run into parts that maybe have some tension, uh, obstacles and all. All right, so that's point number one is, tip number one is recognize that we're crossing a chasm of history. Let's now move to the second tip. The second tip, you're reading your Bible, you come across a tough passage, is to ask, is this describing something or is it prescribing something? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? We want to ask, is this describing something or prescribing something? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? If you think about a newspaper journalist, a newspaper journalist describes something that's happening, right? Even if they're not stoked on it, they're describing the way it is. Whereas a doctor is prescribing something. A doctor is saying, hey, here's what you need to do in order to get healthy. There's an important difference between the two, and it's helpful to recognize the Bible often describes things that it doesn't condone. Right? Describes things that it doesn't condone. And this is one of the things that I actually love about the Bible and have come to appreciate about it, is that it's honest with some of the gritty and tough realities of our world. So if you think, for example, of a movie like 1917 or Saving Private Ryan, kind of a war story, and one of the things we appreciate about these movies when they're good is they do a good job of describing some of the tough and gritty realities. They're not necessarily saying like war is good or we're glad these things are happening, but they're doing an honest job, kind of honestly describing things as they were. Now, there's a difference between that and say a movie like John Wick or uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, where it's more gratuitous violence or sex that's kind of lifting up and saying, hey, this, I want to tantalize you, I want to kind of, uh, you know, stimulate you or lift this up as like, this is a more ideal, good thing or way to live. There's a difference between kind of the honest description versus the more gratuitous prescribing and lifting up. There's a difference between describing something as the way it was or an is, is versus saying this is the way it should be. Now, when it comes to the descriptive, when the Bible is describing things, the Bible often implicitly critiques something in the way that it describes the story. So we may read a story and go, man, God, I want you to just come right out and say in the Bible, like, this is wrong, and find a lot of places where it doesn't do that. And yet, when you press deeper into the story, you find that the way it's being described is actually implicitly critiquing it, even if it's not coming right out and saying it directly. And here's what I mean. So let's take a story like in Judges 19 to 21. Judges chapters 19 to 21. This is the end of the book of Judges. And we come across a really gruesome story here. It's the story of a Levite and his concubine. And they're traveling up, uh, near, they're near Jerusalem, they're in a place called Gibeah, and they stay overnight at someone's house. And while they're there, uh, the men of the town come, and they surround the house, start pounding on the doors, and they end up taking his concubine and violently abusing her and raping her and mistreating her throughout the night. And in the morning, she's dead. And as if that wasn't bad enough, what happens next gets even more gory, right? Like the Levite takes his knife and he ends up carving her up into 12 pieces and sending one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're just going, what is going on here? That is brutal. And also, why don't you just come out and say, like, that's wrong? If that's wrong, why don't you just come right out and say it? What we find is the way this story is being told is strongly, even more strongly than maybe an explicit one would do, a condemnation would do, it's very strongly critiquing this action in the way it's describing the story. That's what I mean. The story mirrors almost to a T the story of Sodom and Gomorrah earlier in Genesis. 
the way that it describes the men surrounding the house and pounding down the door and uh, the concubine that's brought out to the threshold and uh, just there are loads of phrases that are verbatim like copy paste from Sodom and Gomorrah put in here. And the way the Bible works, what it's doing is in the way it's telling the story, it is implicitly saying like Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel has become as wicked and evil as this famous city earlier in the Bible where God heard the cries of violence and oppression come up to reach his ears. And this happened on the precipice of God judging the city. And so there's a strong message being sent here. Israel's become as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah ever was. And God hears the cries of oppression and Israel is on the precipice of judgment. Now, one more factor here in the way that the story is told is if you're reading through Book of Judges as a whole, what you'll find is that the major theme is that the people have no king and everyone's doing as they saw fit and they are fracturing and fragmenting the nation. So Israel, the bride of Yahweh, the people of God are being fractured and fragmented and torn, torn up and carved apart by the destructive power of sin. And you get here to the end of the book of Judges and these chapters, and this event becomes almost like a metaphor that speaks to the broader theme of the book as a whole. That everyone's doing as they saw fit, and it's tearing the people apart, the bride of Yahweh. Now, the point here is that the Bible is critiquing it powerfully, but it's doing it more subversively, implicitly in the narrative itself. Because Israel was comfortable with less didactic teaching and knew the power of story and the power of narrative to actually shape and form our imaginations in some ways that can actually be more powerful than uh, some of the explicit uh, wording and all. Takeaway here is use common sense. If you're reading through your Bible and you come across something that's shocking to us, it probably was to them too. So if you're reading in Genesis 19, where Lot's daughters get him drunk and have sex with him, you go, that sounds bad. It was. <laughs> if you're reading in Judges 11, where Jephthah makes this rash vow and it costs his daughter's life, you go, that sounds bad. It was, right? Like, use common sense. The way these things get told when you press deeper into the stories, these are, it's just describing them, but it's describing them but in a way where these are, things are not good. Another takeaway is sometimes we have to wrestle with the literary context of a passage. So, for example, when you read about King Solomon and he's amassing this massive military and many wives, and some of you might read that and think, oh, man, good for him. Like, that sounds like the glory days, right? Uh, but no, when you actually read the narrative, he is breaking, breaking law after law from the law of Moses, from the, the, the Torah and the commandments of God. He's breaking all these laws. And so implicitly, it doesn't come right out and say, like, King Solomon was doing bad, but it's narrating how he's breaking all of these commands. We have to wrestle with the literary context of a passage because there, for example, it's depicting Solomon as like a fallen Adam, one who's turning away from the ways of the king, of Yahweh, God, as king. Okay, so that's the descriptive. When the Bible's describing stuff, there can be a lot more nuance than we might have at just a distant face value read. Second, now let's talk about the prescriptive. When the Bible is prescribing something, these would be like laws or ethics or rules. So when Jesus says, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, he's telling us this is the way it should be. This is what I want to call you to, what I want you to do. And some laws we read in the Bible, though, there can be some crazy things we come across, like don't eat shellfish or pork and uh, don't wear clothes made of the two fabrics mixed together. And you kind of go, man, what is that all about? Does that still apply to me today? Well, I think a helpful question with these, the prescriptive, some of these, especially some of these weird laws in the Old Testament, is to ask the question, do these laws have a backstory? 
To give you an example, uh, in America, we still have some laws in the books today that are that crazy and weird, right? I live here in Arizona, and there's a law that says uh, you can't let your donkey sleep in a bathtub. Here's <laughs> like, dude, I was not planning on that anyways, but now that you ask, like, what is going on with not letting your donkey sleep in a bathtub? We go to the backstory. It was 1924. There was a rancher whose donkey always slept in the bathtub, and a dam broke, and it washed the tub and the donkey away. And there was this big rescue operation, and it cost all this time and money and effort and energy to rescue this animal and get it back. And afterwards, they were like, dude, let's put a law in the books. Don't let your donkey sleep in the bathtub. The story helps it make more sense. Or in Kentucky today, there's still a law in the books that you can't walk around town with an ice cream cone in your back pocket. Can't carry ice cream in your pants pocket, right? And come on, let the kids walk around running around with their ice cream. But then you get into the backstory, and back in the day, this was a tactic or a trick that horse thieves would use to steal horses. So you're out in the town, you got your ice cream in the back pocket, you're walking along, and horses love sugar, they love sweet things, and so the horse would come along and start licking the ice cream and follow you, and pretty soon, bam, you've nabbed a horse. So they put a law in the books, don't carry ice cream in your back pocket. The point here, when you know the backstory, these laws that can sound crazy at first glance start to make more sense. And similarly, when we look at Israel's laws, there's a backstory to a number of these. The purpose at the time, in the Old Testament, there were a number of laws that were designed to separate Israel from the surrounding nations to make them a distinct people that stood apart. So if we look at things like the two uh, fabrics, not wearing clothes, two fabrics put together, uh, we look around, and scholars would say in, in, in ancient Canaanite culture, there were these fertility cults that were popular, uh, where one of the practices was wedding two things together in ritual worship that often had all these other gnarly practices associated with this ritual worship. And so this law was probably like a case study law that said, hey, don't participate in the fertility cult practices, in essence. Right? Now, we know it wasn't an absolute law because the Levites, the priesthood, they wore clothes made of wool and linen mixed together. So it wasn't absolute, but there was probably this sense when you know the backstory of going, hey, don't participate in the fertility cult practices of the area around you. When we look at things like not eating shellfish or pork, uh, scholars have found that pigs were often used in ancient ritual, uh, Canaanite ritual practices as well that were messed up. And you think about in the ancient world back then, again, crossing the chasm of history, Shellfish are bottom feeders, and these are particular types of food that, if not cooked well, could way more easily lead to health issues. And so uh, there may have been some backstory like that. But I think the question we really are grappling with there is going, well, do these things apply to me today? How do I know if they still apply to me today when it's prescribing things that can sound kind of far out? Well, three, just generally there should be kind of three types of laws in the Old Testament, right? One were these laws that were about separating the people, making them a distinct nation, uh, shellfish and clothes and all. And those don't apply to us today because we're no longer one nation, Israel. We are now the multi-ethnic, multinational kingdom of God in Christ as the church. And we live in many different nations and cultures and, and contexts and all, right? So the New Testament would say those things that were designed um, for separating Israel as a distinct nation no longer apply to us as Gentile believers, the nation today. Second type of law we see in the Old Testament are like sacrificial laws, and those no longer apply to us because Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial system. Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, so those laws don't actually apply to us. We can still learn a lot through them about how they point to Christ and what he's done through his death and resurrection, uh, but we don't need to uh, do them. Or we, they don't apply to us as things that we practice today. Yet the third kind of law uh, would be things that are often called like the moral law. 
And these things are things that do have significance for us today because they reveal God's heartbeat for how we are to live. I love the way that pastor and author Tim Keller puts it. He says, in short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character, his integrity, love, and faithfulness. And so everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery, and all the sex ethic of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, that it is still in force for us today. Okay, well, in short, it's helpful to ask when reading the Bible, is this describing something or is it prescribing something? Is it descriptive and prescriptive? Anyone to recognize within those categories, there's some nuance in how we should approach those. Okay, now let's move to the third and final tip. The third and final tip is to look for the redemptive trajectory. To look for the redemptive trajectory. Look for the redemptive trajectory. You see, the whole story points to Jesus, but on the way, God is way more patient than we are. God often accommodates himself to some of the fallen and tough and gritty realities of our world, and yet he sows seeds of cultural transformation that are headed on a redemptive trajectory towards a better future. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being like yeast that works its way throughout the whole dough and does so slowly, incrementally over time. Think about the early church. The early church radically transformed the Roman Empire, but it did it gradually and slowly over five centuries. So when we think about this redemptive trajectory, let's look at two examples. Uh, One would be polygamy. You can be reading in the Old Testament, you find these stories of polygamy, and it's easy to go, man, is that the biblical vision for marriage? And no, a few helpful things to recognize is, first off, when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 at the very beginning of the story, it very clearly sets up the ideal as one man, one woman, union, two become one flesh, and so on. Uh, And yet, in the ancient Near Eastern world, polygamy was common practice, particularly for the wealthy. What we find in the Bible is it upholds this Genesis 1 and 2 ideal, but then it accommodates itself to some of the realities of the world. But the way that the Bible describes polygamy, every single time, it always ends horribly. Ends horribly, ends badly. Uh, So to give a few examples, uh, with Abraham, it leads to both Isaac and Ishmael in this conflict that goes on for generations and beyond. We get to Jacob. It leads to competition amongst his wives. It leads to fighting and jealousy amongst the brothers. And ultimately, it leads to the uh, Joseph leaving Joseph for dead and selling him off into slavery. When you get to King David, his polygamy led to civil war in the kingdom. It led to insurrection and ultimately led to the death of his son. When we look at King Solomon, his polygamy is uh, described as one of the major causes for his downfall. So every time we see it in the Bible, it never goes good. It always ends badly. And a very Jewish way of reading the story is to say there's a redemptive trajectory that is transforming in the way this is being described. It's pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2 ideal and forward to a better way. We see this with Jesus. In Matthew 19, as Jesus is talking about marriage, uh, he takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he quotes them. Uh, God created you know, male and female. He created them, and the two will become one flesh. And he says, this is the ideal marriage. And then he talks about uh, things that have fallen short of this ideal, and he says uh, that God allowed it, but because of your hardness of heart. It's just going like, here's God's vision, 
But because of your hardness of heart, he's allowed some things that fall short of that vision. And so Jesus gives us this kind of right way of reading scripture that sees Genesis 1 and 2 as uh, design, and yet that uh, tells the story in such a way that it raises the bar on sexual ethics and pointing us towards a redemptive trajectory. So to look at a second example of this uh, with slavery. Now, slavery is a hard-loaded topic, and we see as well in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates humanity in his image, in the image of God, not just the king bearing the image of God, but all humanity bearing the image of God, right? Now, when we come across passages that talk about slavery in the Bible, we, again, we want, often want more of like an outright rejection, just say this is horrible and wrong. But Bible actually has kind of different and subversively a powerful way of addressing it. Let's take a look at first what God does do, what we do see God do is the foundational story of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And in the Exodus, God identifies with and liberates a nation of slaves out of slavery from their oppressors before the watching world. And this is God essentially on a megaphone in the ancient world going, I am a God of the slave and the outcast, and I am for their redemption, their liberation, their freedom next thing we see God do is that after his people are out of slavery, he sets up laws for his people Israel that radically raise the bar on how slaves in Israel are to be treated. When you read the Old Testament laws in comparison to laws of the ancient world, they're radically raising the bar that are humanizing slaves to an extraordinary degree. It's helpful to recognize, too, there are some major differences between uh, slavery in the ancient Near East, and what we tend to think of as slavery today when we think about the topic. Uh, first off, one big difference uh, is that slavery back then was often voluntary. It was uh, often to pay a debt or to escape poverty and kind of placing yourself under uh, that, uh, that person to work for an extended period of time. It's not saying it was great or good, it's just saying that it was different. Another difference is that kidnapping was forbidden. Like kidnapping to make someone a slave was strongly and outrightly condemned in the strongest possible terms. We read in Exodus 21, verse 16, that anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Powerful language. That's saying like American slavery and slavery in the Western world where kidnapping was taking place to put people into slavery. Exodus, the, the law of God also was saying that was worthy of the death penalty for the kidnappers who did that strongest possible condemnation. First Timothy 1.10 uh, in the New Testament is describing lawbreakers and gives these examples of slave traders, liars, perjurers. It's directly saying uh, kidnapping to make someone a slave is uh, evil, right? It's evil and against the law of God. Okay, a third difference between what we think of with modern day uh, chattel slavery and kind of slavery in the ancient Near East is that ancient slavery was not race-based, per se. So uh, within Israel and with the ancient world, uh, it was not based on racial discrimination or ethnic discrimination in the way that uh, more modern times Western slavery was. A fourth and final difference is that the goal in, in ancient Israel, at least, was eventual freedom. Laws surrounding Jubilee and the Sabbath cycles and all were oriented ultimately towards the eventual freedom of those who hit hard times, hard circumstances, and found themselves in this predicament. All right, so that's helpful. The Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, 
uh, we find that roughly 30%, around a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire is estimated to have been slaves. And so we often want the church to just kind of come right out in the New Testament and say, hey, let's end, end slavery now, right? But the reality is, it was, would that have been realistic? Partly because of how pervasive and ingrained it was, and partly because of how small the church was as a persecuted and tiny minority. Would that have been realistic? Instead, what we find is something different, but extremely powerful, perhaps even more effective in the long run happening. And that is that within the church, that the churches as embassies of the God's kingdom throughout the Roman Empire began to become within themselves an equalizing place where the playing field was leveled. And at the weekly feast, the Sabbath, yeah, or the, the resurrection gatherings on uh, Sundays and all, was that uh, together we're feasting Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, with an equal table. And for outsiders in that day kind of walking in, that was shocking to go, what are you, a master, doing eating at the same table with your slave? Because that just wasn't done. And the answer was, well, now in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And these seeds, re reclaiming the image of God and the dignity and worth and all that, these seeds in the church eventually grew to become, in early medieval Christendom and beyond, uh, the abolition movement that ended up leading to the abolition of slavery. All right, well, the takeaway here would be that when we come across some of these tough passages, we want to also place them within the bigger story of Scripture. How does it fit within the narrative arc of Scripture as a whole? Is there a redemptive trajectory this is pointing to? Next week, when you start the Apostles' Creed series, we believe that's going to be really helpful. We're just going, this is the foundations of the story and the foundations of who God is and what he's done, what we believe. And if I come across a tough passage that I, I may not make complete sense to me right now, I can zoom out and go, okay, but here's the bigger story that the Bible proclaims, that the church has historically proclaimed. I can rest in that. If you want to dig deeper into the biblical story, a great resource that I recommend is the Bible Project. Some friends of mine back in Portland, they make these great videos and a great podcast that are just amazing at really looking at the threads of the biblical story and how the whole story is woven together. Okay, well, in summary today, as we approach the R-rated Bible, and you're reading through and come across a tough passage, my encouragement to you, my three tips would be, one, crossing the chasm, right? Like, recognize that you are crossing a chasm of history. Two, Describe versus prescribe. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? And recognizing the nuance within them. And then three is look for the redemptive trajectory. Going, how does this point to Jesus? And how is this maybe setting on a positive arc, redemptive future? Because reality is the whole story points to Jesus. Jesus is the point of the whole story. Jesus is the king who became a slave in order to set us free. Jesus is the husband who is faithful and monogamous to one wife, his bride, Christ the church, and who will never abuse, abandon, or betray us, who loves us faithfully and sacrificially. Jesus at the cross, he was shattered and pulled apart, fragmented, in order to pull and bring us back together from the shattering, fragmenting, destructive power of sin to reunite us and pull us back together as the united body of Christ in union with him and one another. And Jesus is the new Joshua 
who our ultimate hope is he will conquer a hostile enemy for forces and the powers of hell that invaded his good world, and he will restore and reclaim uh, the land, the earth, for his good kingdom. So our hope is in him. Jesus is the point of the whole story. And so the invitation is to get to know him better through his story and through his spirit and to worship him as the king of all the earth. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, we want to know your word better because we want to know you, the word, better. We love you. We want to love your word. We want to grow in it. And God, I pray then as we become a people immersed and saturated in your story for the world, God, uh, give us the wisdom uh, to at times rest in the tension. And God, I do pray that we'd be able to, through the power of your spirit, to be able to kind of cross some of those chasms and uh, enter into just the, the shoes and the understanding that help make this make sense. Lord, to know when you're describing something versus prescribing something that your heart for us would be clear, God, as we enter more fully into your story. And ultimately, God, that we would find the redemptive trajectory, how the whole story points to you as our crucified and risen king. You have taken the R-rated, destructive, uh, crazy elements of our world, and you have borne them in yourself upon the cross, ultimately to find us in the depths of our fallen condition and raise us united with you into life from the grave forever. And so, Jesus, we want to be united with you. We want to know you more fully, more deeply, and we declare our worship, our love, our adoration, our praise to you, Jesus, our living King. It's in your name and for your glory and under your authority that we pray. Amen.